All right, Matthew chapter 23, and uh, we are down here at verse 13, and uh, where he's where Matthew writes, "But woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, and hypocrites, for ye shut up the kingdom of heaven against men, for ye neither go in yourselves, neither suffer ye them that are entering to go in." And we're going to begin the, the, this part of the, this chapter really all the way down where the Lord is going to pronounce eight woes on the religious leaders of the nation of Israel. And uh, as we go through the passage here, what you're reading is the king's verdict uh, on the nation of leadership. And it's not a very pretty picture here what he's going to say to them. And, and rather, it, if you drop, jump ahead and you look down at verse 37, O Jerusalem, O uh, Jerusalem. You see that, O Jerusalem? That's, that's a tearful cry. That's a brokenhearted cry by the king. It, it's not a pretty picture. It's rather a sad indication and, uh, of the, the spiritual condition in Israel. And when the Lord faces them, he, he, he again... He's going to peel, he's going to skin the cat, if you will, here. He's going to peel them. And people always get this idea that the Lord was this meek and mild-mannered and just, you know, pacifist-looking guy, and he's really not. He's really going to take these guys to task. And, and again, when he does it here, he, you're going to see uh, the... You're going to see God's attitude about religion is what you're going to see. Um, I don't know. Last week we ended. I asked, I told you if you for an interesting study, go over there and look at the Beatitudes and compare them with these eight woes. And in the Beatitudes, you you see the reflection of the righteous attitude of God and the and the attitude that the saints in the kingdom are going to have. And here you see the attitude of the religious leaders. But you really see God's attitude towards religion, specifically towards Baal worship, which is the whole, which is what's been has infiltrated Israel completely. So, verse thirteen: But woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For ye shut up the kingdom of heaven against men. For ye neither go in yourselves, neither suffer ye them that are entering to go in. So what he's saying, basically, as we go down through this, is you guys are a bad influence on the people that uh, you, should have, you should be ministering to. Th these guys, they have, they have had good influences on them. They've had John the Baptist come and preach, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. They've had the Lord come and preach, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. They've had the 12 apostles, same. They've had the 70 go out. They've had all of this, they had all of this influence positive on them, and yet they turn around, and in rather than being men of faith and believing what's going on, they've turned around and they've led the nation in a completely different way. And literally, they are they're shutting up the kingdom. They're opposing. They're refusing to allow that message of, by John the Baptist and the Lord and the apostles to go out. They, they have, uh, over and over and over again, they've withstood him. They've rejected him. They've tried to, back there in chapter 22, they're asking him questions to, to trip him up and to get him, rather than embracing it so Basically, they, they are not men of faith. They're, they're, they are looking out for themselves. And Christ is, <laughs> he's pronouncing a woe on them. Woe, you know, Isaiah's horse. Woe is me. <laughs> you know, woe is me. That's the name of Isaiah's horse. Woe is me. <laughs> you know, it's a joke. It's okay. <laughs> you work on that later, okay? And... Rather, these guys, rather than being responsive to what God's saying to them, they refuse it. They reject it. Verse 14, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For ye, does, ye devour widows' houses, and for a 
pretense, make long prayers, therefore you shall receive the greater damnation. It's interesting. They've, we already looked at them. They like to be called rabbi and master and father, those religious titles. And now they're devouring widows' houses. And th th this is an interesting verse. First of all, because the new Bibles don't carry it. They omit it. Um, I actually looked up in the NIV online, and they put brackets around it, and they say it should be omitted. Because what does it do? It nails what religion is all about. When they come in, ye devour widow's house, and for a pretense make long prayers. Well, a widow is a woman whose husband's died. These religious co leaders come in, and they make a pretense... They, they, you know, the old saying, I, well, I've heard it all my life, you know, low money, no pet, uh, or high money, high mass, low money, low mass, no money, no mass. That's the idea. So they, they've come in and they're like, how much, they devour. They take all that she has and they make these pretenses of long prayers. And it's really a sham. It's a filthy lucre thing. And they're praying for the dead woman's dead husband. And we know a group of people that pray for the dead. Okay? And that's where this, again, it's Baal worship. That's what scripture, we can take it and we can go look out around us and we can see it in the different religions. These guys are, they're praying for the woman's dead husband. There are a bunch of long-robed religionists. They go with that title, Father. They, they, again, they, they, they don't believe in the security of the kingdom. That's verse 13. They come in now, and they're beginning to pray, and they devour it in. And they, they're demonstrating. That's why he says, whoa, you hypocrites. What are you doing? You guys have come in. Come over to Psalms 106, Psalms 106. They come in and uh, that <laughs> they're just a simple part of the religious system. Psalms 106 and verse 28. They join themselves also unto Baal Peor. That's Baal worship, and ate the sacrifices of the dead. Now, isn't that interesting? Do we know a group of people? Anyone who makes sacrifices for dead people? <laughs> yeah, we do. They do. And again, we see it all around us. We see it in religion. And when you come back to Matthew 23, that's what you're seeing here. And the Lord's going after the religious system. That's what he's after. And, uh, and, again, the modern-day manifestation, the, the Catholicism, even some of the Protestants, even the occult stuff, here he's dealing with Israel, and they've allowed all that to come into, uh, their, in, into their thinking. Um, you think about purgatory. How do you get out of purgatory? You've got to be praying them out, but that's costing your money. Uh, you've got the penances, you've got limbo, the idea of limbo, you know, and uh, where uh, you're, pr you're, uh, you're, you're praying for the dead and stuff like that. And all of that, we think about it, you know, it's just wacky ideas, but it comes right out of Scripture, comes out of Baal worship, where it's, where it's identified. All right, Matthew 23, verse 15, the next woe. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees and hypocrites. For ye compass sea and land to make one proselyte, and when he is made, ye make him twofold more the child of hell than yourselves. Whoa, that's that's not touchy feely, love, lovey dovey dovey. It's interesting. Years ago, I made the comment that if you preach the gospel of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you're sending people to hell. This is the verse that was in my mind when I said it. What do they do? And they're, they're, these guys, they will go to no ends to, to do evangelism work. 
and to get people in. They're going to compass the sea and the land. They're missionary efforts. They're out there doing this. They're willing to circle the whole planet. And yet their converts are what? Worse than they were before. They make them, well, he says you make them twofold more the child of hell than yourselves. They go out, they make converts, and the converts are worse off than the guys out there doing it. And that's not a compliment to what they were doing. That's the thing. And, you know, when you go have a convert, they're supposed to be better off, not worse off. And yet, here they are. Verse 16. Woe unto you, ye blind guides, which say, Whosoever shall swear by the temple, it is nothing. But whosoever shall swear by the gold of the temple, he is a debtor. Ye fools and blind, for whether, for whether is greater, the gold or the temple, that sanctifieth the gold. And whosoever shall swear by the altar, it is nothing. But whosoever sweareth by the gift that is upon it, he is guilty. Ye fools and blind, for what is greater, the gift or the altar that sanctifieth the gift? Whosoever therefore shall swear by the altar, sweareth by it, and by all things thereon. And whosoever shall swear by the temple, sweareth by it, and by him that dwelleth therein. And he that, swear, and he that shall swear by heaven, sweareth by the throne of God, and by him that sitteth thereon. You know what he's saying and all that? You guys are nuts. That's what he's saying. You guys, your values are all messed up, all twisted up. He, 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 he begins to get into the real problem here. Whosoever, whosoever sweareth by the temple, they're going to say, that's nothing, verse 16. You see, ah, that's nothing. But if you swear by the gold on the temple, they get all worked up. They get upset about it. You see, they're not concerned about the temple that God gave them to build and to worship in and to meet him in. They're more concerned about the gold on the outside, the way it looks. Again, they're protecting their stuff. You know, when uh, the church down in, in Gilbert down there opened up their temple, they had an open house, the LDS church, the, or the LDS temple, sorry, in Gilbert. They, op- they had an open house and you, to the public. We went. And uh, it was interesting. They wouldn't let you go everywhere. You had to stay on the, the plastic runners because they didn't want their stuff messed up. I'm over opening closets, looking in. Excuse me, sir, you got to get back. Oh, yeah, my bad. I, I, okay, you know. Yeah. And we, you go into the marriage room. I wanted to see the marriage room because I had heard some things about it. And I wanted to see what it looks like. And it's just a big white room and so forth with, a, with two mirrors on the opposite sides of the wall so, that produces an eternity mirror. So you keep looking. It goes on and on and on. You know, it's... And then I wanted to see their big baptismal, which was the big ox down with all the 12 heads and all that stuff. And it was interesting. But the thing is, is what were they doing? They were protecting their stuff. You know, if you go up there today, you can't just go walk around. Actually, I was just by there a couple of weeks ago, and they've actually put up security cameras and every, I mean, it's, it's like lockdown, you know, really welcoming. But uh, that's what these guys are doing. Ye fools and blind. Ye fools and blind. You know what? They don't understand a word he's talking about here. He's talking to the religious leaders of the nation. They they, They are the leaders. They have a theocracy where religion and politics were all under one head. And these are the leaders of the, Paul says in Ephesians, the commonwealth of Israel. And he looks at them and he calls them fools and blind. And, you, and he just lays it right out. Here's your problem. 
Ye fool, ye, ye, verse 17, you fools and blind, for whether is greater, the gold or the temple that sanctifieth the gold? They think the gold is greater. All they're interested in is money, power, prestige. They're not interested in what's going on in the temple, which is the worshiping of God. They're, they are just interested in, that's our stuff, don't mess with it, and oh, by the way, you didn't give in, you didn't give in the offering box. So let's get you. Verse 18, and whosoever shall swear by the altar, it is nothing. And again, that's what they say. But whosoever sweareth by the gift that is upon the altar, what do they say? He's guilty. Who gets the gift that's on the altar? They do. The priests do. They're going to get all bent out of shape here if you're going to mess with what is theirs. You can talk about all the altar all you want to. It does, it's not going to make a difference to them. But when you start messing around with what's on that altar... You know, now they get a little touchy. Verse 19, ye fools and blind. For whether is greater, the gift or the altar that sanctifieth the gift? That's the, that's, notice the questions by the Lord. You know, the good questions. Verse 20, whosoever therefore shall swear by the altar sweareth by it and by all things thereon which is the greater the altar or the gift on the altar if you swear by the altar what do you get what's on the altar they're not doing that they're worried about what's the gift verse 21 and whosoever shall swear by the temple sweareth by it and by him that dwelleth Therein Again, they are not interested in God. Don't worry about him. We speak for him. You just make sure you're tithing what needs to be tithed in the offering box on the altar. Verse 22. And he that shall swear by the throne of God and by him that sitteth thereon. Now, the altar is holier than the gift. The temple is holier than the gold. Heaven, verse 20, is holier than the temple. Do you see how God's all over this? He's everywhere with their... But their problem was that they weren't paying any attention to that. They had, they had come in with the traditions of the elders, the traditions of the fathers. They had begun to nitpick and all these little rules and regulations that were really just a bunch of, of, of nonsense. I was sitting in the computer th this afternoon, and I was looking up the 613 commandments found in the, in, in the Torah. And I began to look, and I found a couple sites that listed them. And they're listing them by groups, and they list all these groups down and everything. And at the very bottom, because I went right to 613, I, I wanted to see the group. There's an asterisk, and he says, now, these groups are done by, and I can't, I won't butcher the guy's name, but back in the late 1800s, early 1900s, he did this, and blah, blah, blah. And I'm sitting there going, that's interesting. But they got war, you know, uh, mor morality, and they got all these things, and they got them grouped. Now, they're all out of Deuteronomy and Exodus and Leviticus. Uh, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. That's where they're at. But it, they got all this stuff. And this guy was promoting them. He, this one website was, boom, here they are. Rah, rah, rah. And, you know, and I'm sitting there going, man, they're interested just in what they're going to get out of it. He, uh, verse 22 and, and he that shall swear by it, by heaven, and sweareth by the throne, uh, acknowledge it's true, that's who we're following, then, you know, we're, we, you should be following Christ. You should be going after who he is, and they're not. 
They're not interested in it. They're just interested in them making a little money, a little profit, a little of the, the stuff that's going to be theirs. Okay? No. He's not talking about an oath. And he that shall swear by heaven, if you look there at verse 21, well, sweareth is in all three of it, all of them. It's not an oath. It's, a, it's an acknowledgement. It's an, I'm gonna, we're going to acknowledge. Which do we acknowledge, the temple or the gold on the temple? Which do you acknowledge, the altar or the gift on the altar? Which one, which one is more valuable to you? Okay? All right? Did that help? Okay. All right. I, by the way, woe to you, fools and blind. <laughs> it's just like, and, and again, to me, I, I look at this and I go, wow, we, we, you hear so much about how Christians and Christ and all this kind of limp-wristed stuff. And he's not, this, he's not at all. And by the way, Paul was not either. People say, oh, Paul should, you know, he was, Paul was not. When, when you crossed him doctrinally, he peeled your hide back quickly because it needs to be done. And uh, yes, we have our, we're to be gentle, and te- but we're teaching those in, there in the passage in Timothy that oppose themselves. So how do you do that? You don't come up there with the huggy lovey. You come up there with the sound doctrine right between the eyes. That's, I, I just, it just, I don't know, verse 23. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for ye pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin, and have omitted the weightier matters of the law, judgment, mercy, and faith. These ought ye have done, and not to leave the other undone. Ye blind guides, which straineth at a gnat, and swallow a camel. <laughs> Like, can you just picture that, you know? Uh, th- they are missing the weightier matters. They're, they're, they're tithing on the mint and the anise and cumin. That's the little stuff. I don't know, you ever, you ever seen a gnat? How small they are? You know... Yeah, you, they, they, they will literally, a gnat can literally come through a screen on a window where a fly and a mosquito, it'll stop. They're that little. They're, I mean, we were out the other day um, and, uh, in the backyard and we're trying something new this year for the first time and that's putting in winter grass. And so Brian was over and he was helping me do it. And you could look, and just in the way the sun hit, you could see all the fly, the flying bugs. See, a screen will stop all that. But the gnat, that's that little guy. You see, they're, they're worried about the little guy, and they're paying attention to all the physical things, the gold, the altar, the gift on the altar, the ant, all this stuff. They're straining at a gnat. And they're swallowing a camel. It's hard to swallow a camel. I, I can remember growing up, especially two humps, yes. <laughs> okay. There's a joke in that, I know. But anyway. But I can remember, you know, have you ever been drinking something and you're outside and all of a sudden you go, and you swallowed the bug or something, you know? It's easy to swallow the gnat down. You can just get that and you don't even, some, most of the time you don't even notice it. But man, to try to swallow out a camel... You're in, these guys are so warped in their thinking and in their understanding. They come along and they put, they're sitting there going, we're, they are doing everything that people can see. They're tithing on the anise. You know how when you tithe, people see you do that. They see, when you, the offering box in the back, at, at Shorewood, growing up, we, they passed an offering plate, and the ushers would go down the aisle, and you're always looking to see who's putting in what, you know? And, and we're kids, okay? You're, you're watching, and you're, you're looking. And then we caught one of the older gentlemen making change out of the offering bo- plate. <laughs> he, he had a 20, he took a 10 and 5 out. <laughs> it's like, 
So we're looking and we're watching, you know. And you, but that's what these guys are doing. They're, you know, the, the widow's might. They're over there dumping it in, making sure everybody's looking. All right, you see it, you know. And they've left the what? The weightier things, the, the things that are important, they'll never address. The real weighty things, the law, the judgment, there in verse 23, mercy and faith, the moral issues, they had no time for that. We'll do that on Wednesday night. <laughs> We've got to do this today, you know. Somebody asked me uh, one time years ago about the offering box being in the, by the back door, and I said, well, I get you coming in and leaving. So that's two. Yeah. Double up on that tithe, you know. And uh, he's like, he just, he looked at me like I was dead serious. And I said, no, that we do that from tradition because when we first got started, actually, literally, it was just myself and Nick Marcosian. We were the only one, only men there. So we just said, let's just do this on by the door and we'll worry about passing offering plates another time. And it just kind of, you know, went on down and as more people came I looked at Nick, should we? He goes, nope, <laughs> just leave it by the door. You know, it's more out of, out of convenience and tradition than all the other because uh, sometimes some of us need to be put on the spot about our giving. You know, what's he doing over there? What's going on? You know, the, the hardest thing about not having an offering, honestly, is not giving a time for a special music or something to happen. As it's happening, you know, Andrea play and somebody sing or something like that which we could always do, but anyway, I don't know when I'm off on that. These guys, the Lord's saying to them, you pay the tithes, but you're doing all that outward stuff, but you're not really getting to the heart of the matter. And uh, you guys have the spiritual destiny of all these people in your hands. You have their souls in your hands. And yet you guys are just a bunch of Bible blockheads. You're just a, you guys are straining at a gnat and swallowing a camel. And, uh, you know, they'll be the first to squeal. There's a little speck of something in my food, you know. And there it is. They're, they're, they're worried about the little itty-bitty stuff, and they're missing the big. That's, by the way, that's what he means by swallow a camel. They're miss, you're missing the big, and you're over here worried about the little. And that's what's happening to Israel. Instead of walking by faith and responding to God's word to them, they've gotten caught up in all of the physical stuff out there. And uh, that's where their eyes on. And that's what's got them their attention. So he says, verse 25, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For ye make clean the outside of the cup and of the platter, but within they are full of extortion and excess. Thou blind Pharisee, cleanse first that which is within the cup and platter, that the outside of them may be clean also. That's an interesting picture he's drawing of them. You guys clean up. If The idea here is, is if you would clean up the, the inside then the outside will follow. If you guys would worry about what's going on morally, spiritually within you, then all this exterior stuff will take care of itself, would get straightened out, and it would be there. But what does religion focus on? The inside or the outside? The outside. And usually it forgets about the inside. And uh, again, he, he's, he's dealing with them, and he's dealing with them straight, and in harsh, hard is right. You guys, and, and they don't see it. That's the thing, and that's what the Lord's basically saying, is you guys don't see this. You think you can do the external things, because that's what your religion has taught you to do. But what's making you miss the mark is the stuff going on inside of you. So he says, verse 27, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for ye are like unto white sepulchres, which indeed appear beautiful outwardly, 
but are within full of dead men's bones and of all uncleanliness. You guys are just a bunch of bag of bones. That's all you are. You, you look good outside. You got the, you know, the nice veneer, the nice gold on the temple. You got white, that whitewashed exterior. But inside, you are terrible. You're rotten down to the core. Verse 28, even so ye also outwardly appear righteous unto men, but within ye are full of hypocrisy and iniquity. That's a very clear statement, isn't it? And much you can add to that. The Lord does that from time to time. Just gives a clear statement of what's going on, and you move on. But the thing is, is this is tough. And the Lord, even though the Lord is hot with them, he's been tough with them, it's breaking his heart to have to do it. You know, it's, it's, it's like that, that father disciplining that out-of-line child, you know. It's not an easy task to do, and yet he's having to do it. Verse 29, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because ye build tombs of the prophets and garnish the sepulchres of the righteous, and say, if we had been in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partakers with them in the blood of the prophets. Now he's going to lower the boom on them here. Watch. <laughs> you guys are a bunch of hypocrites. You look back across your family tr history, and you see where your fathers killed the prophets. And you go over here and you keep the temple, the, the, the cemetery, the plots all up, and you get it all decorated up. And then you have the audacity to think and to say that if I lived back there, I wouldn't have done this. When Watch verse 31. Wherefore ye be witnesses unto yourselves that ye are the children of them which killed the prophets. Fill ye up then the measure of your fathers, ye serpents, ye generations of vipers. How can ye escape the damnation of hell? He's, gonna, he's just going to go on them big time. You know, have you ever heard somebody say, well, if I was living back then, I would have never killed Jesus. Have you ever heard that? I've heard it from time to time over, from people. The thing of it is, is yes, you would have. Because there they are. They're doing the same thing that their fathers did. What are they trying to do? What have they done to John the Baptist? They've killed him. What are they trying to do to the Lord? We're in the, we're in the shadow of the cross here. They're going to kill him. What are they going to go do to James? And they're going to kill him. What are they going to go do to Peter and John? They're going to try to kill those guys. The, these guys are walking right in the footsteps of dad. Of their dad, John 8, 44, the devil. By the way, John 8 is another passage where he just kind of peels their hide. And here they are. Fill ye up the measure of your fathers, verse 32. Ye serpents, ye generation of vipers, how can ye escape the damnation of hell? You see, the wrath of God is about to fall on these people and consume them. Now, the wrath, that's going to be the tribulation period. But again, what do they see? They see Calvary on, my, on the chart here. They don't see the dispensation of grace. What do they see? Wrath is coming. That's what he's talking Ye generation of vipers. He's going to call them over verse 36, And verily I say unto you, all these things shall come upon this generation. Jeremiah, come back to Jeremiah 7. The, the, these guys are, there's several things in that generation term. Jeremiah 7 and verse 29. Jeremiah 7, 29. Cut off thine hair, O Jerusalem, and cast it away. And take up a lamentation on high places. For the Lord hath rejected and forsaken the generation of his wrath. 
Now, there's a couple things you got to remember when you're dealing with prophecy. One is the historical context of where it sat, where it sits. Jeremiah, where's he sitting? They're going into the, Nebun- the Babylonian captivity. Okay? So there goes, in that current period, there is a generation of his wrath historically as they're getting carried off into Babylonian captivity. But it's also, Jeremiah is also a prophet. And he's talking about who? A group coming in the future that's going to be labeled what? The generation of his wrath. Here they are in Matthew. That's who he's talking about because the next thing on the prophetic calendar is the 70th week of Daniel. And here it comes. So you've got some things there you kind of kind of have to remember. You, uh, go back to Matthew 23. Ye serpents, ye generation of vipers, how can ye escape the damnation of hell? You see, the wrath is coming. The wrath of God and the time of Jacob's trouble is going to fall on them. Now, that little believing remnant over here will be saved out and through it. But Christ is pronouncing the judgment and the verdict of God on that nation. You're done. You're the generation of vipers. You're the generation of his wrath. The other thing about the word generation, one group of people in a time, okay, but also that word generate is there. And when you generate something, you're, you're generating. See, the satanic policy of evil is generating these guys. They're under satanic captivity and bondage and he's generating some things out of it so it's that word generation has more than just a time period with people and so forth which is what he's talking how he's using the word here the other is that thing over there in john 8 where you are your father the devil that the devil has generated this group of people as well so you've got kind of a have to kind of remember that what helps you understand the word generate or generation is where we're sitting. He's talking to a ver- hypocrites, Pharisees, fools, blinds, the Sanhedrin. You guys are the culmination of my wrath is going to fall on you guys that are sitting right here. Again, they have no clue of the interruption. The next tick- And by the way, we're at Calvary. Luke 16, the Lord extends it another year. There's early Acts. Then we're going to have seven years of the tribulation, the 70th week of Daniel. So you're only talking about maybe eight, nine years out. You're not talking about 50 years or 40. You're only talking about a set amount of time here. So they're not, he, so those, the people he's talking to, if you kind of think down through without the interruption, are these this group of people that's why he's preparing that little flock to go in and do the work and to occupy when he leaves and we've been stressing that verse 34 wherefore behold i send unto you prophets and wise men who sent the prophets well who's talking the lord did jehovah did When he says, I did, I sent these, Jesus Christ is the speaker, and he is speaking for God as if he was God the Father. Because who really sent the prophets back there in the Old Testament? God the Father did. He says, I sent it. This is a great statement on the deity of Christ right here. And it's one of those statements that the New Bibles, they haven't caught up to. It's fascinating. The New Bibles will go after, you know, Mary and, and the Lord and his brothers, and they change that to brothers, to cousins, and all this. And they miss the thing in Psalms that says it's his brothers and sisters. <laughs> there's, the, there's always a verse here or there that will still protect the deity, even in the New Bibles, because they haven't quite caught on to all of them to change them so don't let the cat out of the bag here's one here okay they the lord is saying you know what i'm god and 
I'm the one that sent those to you. And some of them ye shall kill and crucify, and some of them shall ye scourge in your synagogue and persecute them from city to city. No wonder they crucified him. He came in and just told them that he was Jehovah God in the flesh. And that's what they, when we studied John, I pointed out, man, they got mad at him, not about the Sabbath, but when he said he was God. They got really mad at him. And here they are again. And they don't believe him. And if they did believe him, they would have believed him because the word said it. If you, you claim father, Abraham is your father, Abraham spoke of me. And if you believed him, you'd have believed me. And you don't. So it's done. Verse 35, that upon you may come all the righteous blood shed upon the earth from the blood of righteous Abel unto the blood of Zacharias, son of uh, Berechiah, whom ye slew between the temple and the altar. Verily I say unto you, all these things shall come upon this generation. Notice verse 36 all these things come upon this generation. Verse 33, ye serpents, ye generation of vipers. Again, Jeremiah 7, we just looked at it. This generation of the wrath of God. He's talking about these folks going into the 70th week of Daniel. There they are. And what does he do in verse 36? He's forsaken them. All these things shall come upon this generation. If you look at verse 38, Behold, your house is left unto you, what? Desolate. He's forsaken them. He's left them. He's called and gathered together that believing remnant out of this nation, and now he is going to completely withdraw from the nation. He leaves them, and he leaves them for the wrath of God for the 70th week, to come in and to destroy them, to purge out the rebel, to clean up the dross, to get rid of them. That's why that thing in Isaiah when he talks about the Antichrist and he's the rod of my indignation and he's doing it and he doesn't even know he's doing it for me. And the Lord uses the Antichrist to purge out, to clean up Israel so that that believing remnant is going to go on into the kingdom. And that's where we're at. This generation. Come over to Acts chapter 2. Here they are. Well, we were talk, just talking about has there, these guys are here. They don't know anything about Paul or the dispensation of grace. So they're looking at going in. And what does Peter say? Acts 2, verse 40. Acts 2, verse 40. And with many other words did he, that's Peter, testify and exhort, saying, Save yourselves from this untoward generation. That word untoward, crooked, perverse. Save yourself. Get out of that. How do they save themselves? Well, he just told them, verse 38, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remissions of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. What do they do? The door in is water baptism. So they got to go get John's baptism. Then they're going to go join that little flock, and then they're going to go do what need, and, and get into the issues of what Hebrews calls the doctrines of Christ, the apostles' doctrine. So from Acts 2 to 7, what, that's exactly what Peter and them are doing, building up that little flock, getting them in. They're doing the same thing that John the Baptist did, that Christ did, that the 12 did. And what is it? Repent, get baptized, here comes the kingdom. It's right here. And actually, in Acts 2 to 7, it's not at hand, it's being offered to them. It was at hand, he's gone. That nobleman has returned to heaven to get the kingdom and then to return. Now it's offered to them. They got to take it. Untoward, uh, crooked, perverse. Okay? And that's what he's talking about here. And I'll be honest with you, when you think about where we're sitting, Acts 2 to 7, 
We see, go back to Matthew 23, this generation of wrath. That ought to make you appreciate the dispensation of grace even more than how we already do. Because it's the, the dispensation of grace that's holding back the wrath. That's why when you read passages like in, with Paul there in 2 Corinthians 5, where he's not imputing trespasses to the world. Well, if he did, what would he have to do? Wipe them out. They're guilty. They're sinners. But he's not doing that. Rather, he's got a group, the church, the body of Christ, the ambassadors for Christ out there preaching a word of reconciliation. It's fascinating to me. Every day, every hour, every moment is just another extension of God's grace. And I'll tell you what, that makes the dispensation of grace a wonderful thing. Because it's been going on. He's extended his long suffering for a little over 2,000 years. Forbearance. Yeah, it's a great thing. So come back to Matthew 23. We'll finish up here. So they don't get it. They're woe and he's woed them. <laughs> he's laid it on them. Verse, 20, uh, verse 37, again, he's looking over that guilty city, and this is the, a heart's cry of, this, of the Savior. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that killest the prophets and stonest them which are sent unto thee, how often would I have gathered thy children together even as a hen gathereth her chickens under her wings, and you would not. The whole, chap, the whole part of this chapter has been a scathing rebuke of the, of the religion that has crept into Israel. And yet Christ didn't utter it with fire and thunder in his voice. He rather uttered it all with a broken heart. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. And he looks at the hardness of their heart. And again, he, he just cries. You killed the prophets. Go on in your blind and foolish ways. But just know I would have protected you. I would have come up just like a mother hen with her little chicks and protected you. But you didn't want it. You just didn't want it. I would have come and did for you what needed to be done. But you didn't want me. So what does he say, verse 38? Behold, your house is left unto you desolate. Come back to chapter 21. Chapter 21. And verse... 13, 21.13, a verse we've already seen. 21.13, and he said unto them, it is written, notice, my house shall be called the house of prayer. You see, he calls the temple here my house. But in Matthew 23, he's in the temple, and you know what he calls it? Your house. It's no longer my house, it's your house Back to Matthew 23, 39. For I say unto you, ye shall not see me henceforth till you shall say, Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. I'm out of here. Verse 20, chapter 24, verse 1. And Jesus went out and departed from the temple. And his disciples came to him for to show him the buildings of the temple. Note, what did he do? He left. You've got to see what he's doing here. He places himself as God the Father, pronouncing judgment on the temple as he's leaving it. In essence, he's saying, I am God, Jehovah. I am God, I'm Jehovah, and I'm leaving. And this, because this place is not my house anymore. It's yours, it's your religion, it's your thing. I'm leaving, and the judgment of God is coming. And you're not going to see him again, verse 39 there, until they are willing to receive him and to receive their kingdom. Some will, some won't. So Matthew 23 ends up being a verdict 
a pronouncement of judgment that's being laid out here finally. Now in chapter 24, he's going to go outside. He's going to give the second Sermon on the Mount, the Olivet Discourse. And uh, we'll start there next time. And he's going to move into to the garden and off he goes. But real quick, before we got five minutes before the top of the hour. Verse 35, 2335. And Luke 24, 44 are two verses in the scripture that you and I need to be very familiar with because of what they say. Now, there's a lot going on in their context. So it's, we need to understand what they're saying more than just their context. Uh, hold on here. Look over at Luke 24 first. Go there. Luke 24, 44. Jesus Christ gives two great canonical statements. Now, a canon statement declares what the contents of the Bible are. What are the books that make up the Bible, the canon of Scripture? Luke 24, 44, and Matthew 23, 35, two places the Lord sets what should be in the Old Testament in the Scriptures. So in, his, in the Lord's day, when you hear the critics all talk about, well, none of this was really done till 80, 90, and blah, 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 blah. These two verses say to us that in the Lord's day, the Old Testament scriptures were set. Paul, over later to Timothy, quoting Luke, says, guess what? The Gospels are set. So you've got to pay attention. Peter, later writing 2 Peter, says... Paul's epistles have been set, except for Timothy. He didn't have the Second Timothy Titus passages yet. So you've got to pay attention to what's going on. Luke 24, 44. The Old Testament here is identified by Christ as having three sections to it. And he said unto them, These are the words which I speak un spake unto you while I was yet with you that all things must be fulfilled which are written in the law of Moses, section 1, section 2, in the prophets, section 3, and in the Psalms concerning me. The law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms are the three great divisions that make up the Old Testament. They make up the Jewish Bible, the Hebrew Bible. You have the Torah, the Nebu um, Nebuim, and the Ketheb, it's, it's got a B in there, and I, I stumble over the P. So the, you have the, the Nebuchadnezzar, the, the prophets, the Kethubin, the writings. The book of Psalms stands at the heading of the writings. Okay, so that's why it's called the Psalms. These three divisions are in the Hebrew Bible today. Now, when you look at a Hebrew Bible today, it does not have... How many, Bi how many Bibles, books in the Bible do we have in our Old Testament? 39. 27 in the New Testament. 39. By the way, easy way to remember that is 27 in the New, in the old, um, in the new Testament is 3 times 9 makes 27, right? So 39 in the Old Testament, 3 times 9 makes 27 in the New Testament. Anyway. I don't do math very well, nor do I really speak a lot of Hebrew very well. But what I do know is that when you come to a Hebrew Bible in your Old Testament, we have, um, there are 12 minor prophets, okay? In the Hebrew Bible, we break them out, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, individually. In the Hebrew Bible, they put them together, one book called the Twelve, Okay? You go to, to uh, King Samuel and Chronicles. All that's combined called Chronicles. Now you've got the, the front five are good. Joshua, Joshua, Judges, Samuel, Kings, boom. You got all this going on. You know, so you got this different arrangement. And that helps you when you come to go back to Matthew 23 and verse 35. So when you read about 
like the Lord says, the law, the prophets, and the Psalms. Okay, that's the three major markup there. But now notice Matthew 23, 35. Because he says, that upon you may come all the righteous blood shed upon the earth from the blood of righteous Abel. Where does that happen? Genesis chapter 4. Okay? Unto the blood of Zachari uh, Zacharias, the son of Barachias, whom ye slew between the temple and the altar. That is Second Chronicles. Okay? So the first book in the Hebrew Bible is Genesis. The last book in the Hebrew Bible is Second Chronicles. Different arrangements. Okay? So it's like us saying Genesis to Revelation, our Bible. They're saying Genesis to Second Chronicles. Thank you. Okay? Because what happens is, so what the Lord is saying is, is your Old Testament is from what? Genesis to Second Chronicles. All right? Now, 35, where we just were. Now, let me show you something here real quick. Get Malachi chapter 4, Malachi 4, and then go get 2 Chronicles uh, 36. Just show you something here. Very fascinating how your Bible just kind of works out and works through things here and uh, really produces and shows you of a divine author rather than just a bunch of men doing it up in an ivory tower somewhere. When the Lord says, Matthew 23, 35, from Abel to, from Genesis to 2 Chronicles, from the beginning of the Bible to the end of the Bible, they don't have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and the New Testament yet. <laughs> Here's the book, okay? By the way, the Hebrew Bible only has 24, did I tell you that, books, okay, instead of the 39. The first... Uh, Ezra and Nehemiah, their one book. Um, the 12 minor prophets are one. Uh, you look at Samuel and Kings is one. Chronicles is one. You know, they have them grouped up differently. And if you ever run across um, a Hebrew Bible, you'll see that. You'll wonder, why is it out of order? It's not out of order. It's their order. <laughs> okay? It's, the, it's, it's the, the law, the Psalms, and the prophets. Uh, Malachi 4, the last verse in a Gentile Bible is Malachi 4, verse 6. And notice what the last word of the last verse in a Gentile Bible is. Verse 6. What's the last word? Curse. What's going to happen to the Gentiles? They're cursed. They're not my people. They're on the wrong side of the middle wall of partition, Genesis 17. They're cursed. See that? Now go and look at 2 Chronicles 36. <clears throat> and the last of that chapter, verse 22 and 23... You have Israel coming out of, you, you have the restoration of Israel out of Babylon back into the land. Where is Israel looking to go? Back into the land. Second Chronicles 36, verse 22 and 23. The, the Cyrus pronouncement there. So the Hebrew Bible ends, the Jewish Bible ends with them going back into the land and restored. The Gentile Bible, our Bible, has it ending with us doing what? Being cursed. Because we're outside of, we're on the wrong side of, uh, of the law. So your Old Testament is arranged in such a manner that tells you exactly what the future is going to be for the Gentiles. And what the future is going to be for the nation of Israel. So don't miss... Matthew 23, 35, about that little can the canonical statement there about from Abel, 
from Genesis to Second Chronicles. Very important. I know usually we just kind of skip down through it because of the context, but it's another one of those passages that solidify. So when you hear somebody say, well, we really don't know what the, the order or the establishment of the Old Testament was, you can say, no, 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 no. The Lord said, Matthew 23, Luke 24, here it is. I'll believe the Lord. You can believe whatever you want, but I'll take the Lord's word. <laughs> and he establishes that, okay? Just a little aside, get you over, uh, filled up the hour, okay? Yes. The last two verses, 22 and 23, okay? All right. Dearly Father, we thank you for the evening. We thank you for the study and for the look into uh, the things here. And uh, we'll just give you the praise and the glory and the honor. In your name we pray. Amen. Also, by the way, before I stop the tape, there is no apocrypha and there's no pseudepigrapha. Just the books. Okay? All right.